Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. My name is Katherine Sainer. I'm the head of the Science and Engineering Library, and it's my privilege to welcome you to our lecture series entitled Synergy, Explorations in Science and, and Society. The purpose of this lecture series is to provide a platform for the UCSC and Santa Cruz community to learn about the exciting research in science and engineering currently in progress at UCSC. Many people, of course, were involved in the production of today's event, so I'd like to take just a moment to thank them. And their names um, are Vince Navoa, Sandy Schmidt, Weiwei, Molly Ostrander, Danielle Kane, Ferry Ranema, Terry Haugen, and Ann Hubble. So thank you to all of you who helped make this event happen today. Um, as you took your seat today, you may have noticed the comment card. We are very interested in hearing back from you about the lecture series, about what you saw today, um, what you liked, what you didn't like, and any um, suggestions you might have for future speakers. So please um, use the comment card and the pencils that are available. You can drop those off at the welcome table um, when you leave, which is just on the right outside the door. Which, by the way, if you didn't stop by the welcome table, there are articles by our uh, speaker today, Dr. Susan Schwartz, for you to pick up um, on your way out, as well as your very own post-it note with our Synergy Lecture Series logo. So please take one of these as well on your way out the door. Um, also, we have a sign-in sheet for those of you who may not have received email automatically uh, through the campus. Uh, for those of you who'd like to be uh, aware of future lectures, upcoming lectures, we, of course, also have a website for our lecture series, uh, which lists our upcoming speakers. And we have lined up several for the next year, for 2006. Um, those people include Mary Silver, Bruce Schum, and David Hausler. So stay tuned. Check our website. See when those are. We'd love to see you. Um, and this, of course, is also my opportunity to let you know that we hold lectures every quarter, except for the summer. Um, and so um, our next lecture will be held in March of 2006. See. So now it's my pleasure to introduce Cynthia Johns, who is the head of our map room, which is in the lower level of this building. So if you haven't taken a look at our maps, it's an excellent resource, and we're open from 1 to 5 in the afternoon. And now Cynthia is going to introduce our speaker. Hi. Dr. Schwartz received a BS in geophysics from Brown University an MS in paleomagnetism, and a PhD in seismology from the University of Michigan. After graduation in 1988, she was awarded a University of California President's Postdoctoral Fellowship that brought her to the University of California, Santa Cruz. After being there for only one year, the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, magnitude 6.9, occurred, thrusting Dr. Schwartz into field seismology using the newest state-of-the-art Pascal portable seismic instrumentation. Following this experience, Dr. Schwartz led several field experiments, including aftershock studies of the 1991 Costa Rica earthquake, magnitude 7.7, .7, and the 1992 Petrolia, California earthquake, magnitude 7.0, as well as investigations of plate boundary and volcanic processes along the San Andreas Fault near the Mendocino Triple Junction, at Arenal Volcano, and most recently above the seismogenic zone in central and northern Costa Rica. She is presently a professor of Earth Sciences and director of the Center for the Study of Imaging and Dynamics of the Earth at UC Santa Cruz. She teaches introductory classes for non-science majors, classes designed for undergraduate Earth Science majors, 
and graduate classes in seismology and geophysics. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Schwartz. Thank you, Cynthia and um, Catherine, for inviting me to give the inviting me to, to give the um, Science and Engineering Library Synergy Lecture. Uh, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk about a subject that I've been interested in for my entire scientific career, and that is um, trying to understand earthquake occurrence at subduction zones. So, um, and I should say that um, the National Science Foundation has supported a lot of my, um, my research in, in understanding great earthquakes, and the Margins program of NSF has uh, supported the most recent work that I'm going to talk about today. So what I'd like to do is actually give this talk three times. Um, not so much to pound it, particular point into your head, but to be able to address earthquake occurrence from three different perspectives. Um, I want to start just giving you an introduction about earthquake occurrence, um, the where, why, and how from a plate tectonics perspective. And everything I'm going to say in the first part of the talk is from research that's been conducted in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, certainly before um, I've been involved in earthquake research. Then I want to visit great earthquakes and, uh, in particular, talk about um, the 2004 Sumatra earthquake and tsunami and tell you what we've learned from this uh, great earthquake uh, about earthquake processes at subduction zones. And then finally, I want to talk about research that I've been involved in um, in the last few years investigating great earthquake occurrence and the property of the kind of plate boundary that generates them at the Costa Rica subduction zone. So let's just start with a global picture of earthquakes. Um, they don't occur randomly over the globe, and we've known this for a long time, but they tend to align in kind of linear zones that we now recognize outline large uh, tectonic plates. These plates are moving with respect to each other, and there's three different kinds of plate boundaries um, where the earthquakes occur as these different plates are moving. And I just want to go over the, the three different environments and kinds of earthquakes that occur there. Where plates diverge, as you see here, um, you tend to get normal faulting earthquakes uh, in response to the um, extension. These type of plate boundaries tend to occur in the middle of oceans because we're actually creating a new ocean floor here. Uh, I guess it's also shown up, oops, sorry, over here. They also can occur in the continents, like the East African Rift Zone or the Gulf of California, where plates converge. Uh, this is the, these uh, boundaries are known as subduction zones. This is what we're going to focus on. This is where the great earthquakes uh, generally occur. Here we get thrust earthquakes, you can see here. And, uh, they tend to occur well, around the edges of the Pacific Ocean. You've probably known that area called the Ring of Fire because of the association of volcanoes with subduction zones. And the third kind of plate boundary is where plates are just moving, there we go, uh, side by side. Uh, these are transform faults. They occur, they separate. Um, Mid-ocean ridges in the middle of oceans. They also can occur in continents. You're probably familiar with the San Andreas Fault, which is a uh, transform plate boundary. So with this kind of just general plate tectonic setting, we can answer a lot of the, the questions that were posed. Where do earthquakes occur? 
They occur at the boundaries of these large plates. Why do they occur? Well, they occur because the interior of the Earth is hot. It's losing its heat through a process called convection. Uh, the plates are the outer cool part of the convection system, and they are moving around uh, with respect to each other. And the how, how do these earthquakes occur? Well, plates are moving, but at the faults, individual parts of, of the plate, um, they have some finite strength. And so they can actually accumulate strain or displacement from the plate motions and um, store it until the uh, strain exceeds the failure strength of the fault and then suddenly break. And this, was, um, this is called elastic rebound, something that we've known, again, for over 100 years. Okay, so um, we have a general kind of context to understand the where, why, and how. But if we look at the distribution of the really great earthquakes around the globe, what we find is that they're not uniformly distributed across all of the different plate boundaries, but they concentrate in the subduction zones. And I mentioned here the edges of the Pacific are all subduction zone uh, plate boundaries. So we'd like to ask why do great earthquakes occur um, almost exclusively or certainly uh, mostly at subduction zone plate boundaries. To answer that, um, basically you have to know that great earthquakes break large fault areas. Okay. And we can get largest fault areas at sub subduction zone boundaries because um, earthquake failure is a brittle process, doesn't occur all the way down throughout the Earth. It only occurs in the upper portions where temperatures are low enough to get brittle failure. Eventually, as temperatures increase, you um, get a ductile deformation or flow, and you can't develop earthquakes. So first of all, subduction zones, because we have the cool part of the convective system actually being subducted, we get lower temperatures to greater depth than in continental or certainly in um, extensional areas like Mid-Ocean Ridge where we have, that's the upwelling part of the convective system. And also uh, the dip of the plate boundary is much shallower. At subduction zones, actually in this cartoon it's a little bit exaggerated, but the dip can be somewhere between 10 and maybe 20 degrees. And so you have a lot, a, no, compared with um, faults that occur in extensional environments or in continental environments here, which are much more vertical. And so um, you're reaching higher temperatures with the vertical faults at um, shorter fault uh, widths than for a dipping fault. So basically, you have a larger area, larger width. Now, the long strike, the in and out um, length of the fault is controlled kind of locally by different factors. But because of the lower temperatures and the shallow dip of the subduction zone faults, you can have larger areas and, in general, greater earthquakes. All right, but yet, if we go back to this picture of great earthquakes where they occur globally, the, the black blobs are actually showing the areas that broke in large, particular large earthquakes. And you can see that some subduction zones have very large earthquakes. Alaska, Aleutian subduction zone, Kamchatka. This is the um, fault area of the 2004 Sumatra earthquake down here in southern Chile. Extremely large earthquakes. And not, no great earthquakes at all in the Izubonin, Marianas, and into New Zealand subduction zones. So there's a lot of variation uh, 
within subduction zones for those that generate large earthquakes and those that, that don't. And Ruff and Kanamori studied this in 1980 and tried to correlate a number of subduction zone parameters with the maximum size of earthquakes. And what they found were two parameters correlated very well and it could explain kind of this distribution of great earthquakes. They found that the age of the ocean plate being subducted and the rate, the rate that it was converging um, were the most important factors. And if you had young ocean floor, okay, now remember ocean crust is created at a hot ridge and as it ages, it cools. So if it's young, it's hot and buoyant. If it's converging at a fast rate, you're gonna get a uh, large horizontal force and strong coupling between the plates and uh, able to generate large earthquakes compared to old, dense uh, ocean floor subducting it at a slow convergence rate that's gonna wanna just sink down into the ocean, not couple to the upper plate, not generate large earthquakes. So their correlation uh, is shown here with some data. So on the uh, Y, oops, I keep pressing the advance and not the, not the um, laser pointer, but um, on the Y axis here is the rate that the ocean plate is being subducted. And on the X axis is its age. And um, their correlation study, their, their contours of expected earthquake size are shown here. And actually real data, the largest earthquake generated in particular subduction zones is shown as the dots. And you can see that in general, um, subduction zones that, that plot down here that have old ocean floor or ocean plate subducting at slow rates, in fact, have the largest earthquakes tend to be smaller than those subduction zones with very young ocean plate converging at a uh, very high rate where you get the really great earthquakes. But there are a lot of exceptions. The correlation is not even close to perfect. And I highlighted here um, particular uh, subduction zone that doesn't fit this trend, the Sumatra subduction zone, which generated in December a magnitude 9.2, 9.3 earthquake. And it kind of sits in the middle as far as age and, and rate. And yet this earthquake was the second or third largest subduction zone or earthquake of any kind uh, instrumentally recorded. So I want to talk a little bit about that earthquake and what we've learned about uh, more about large subduction zone earthquakes from, from studying it. Okay, so first just to again emphasize the, the, where it fits in globally, the huge size of this earthquake. This is um, a map view of locations and a list of the 10 largest earthquakes that, we, that have been recorded. And first thing is all but this one here, 1950 Tibet earthquake, are subduction zone earthquakes. Okay, the really great earthquakes occur in the subduction zone environment. The Sumatra earthquake is, I keep saying second or third. Um, I hope after I'm done talking today, you'll, I'll, I can uh, help you understand why it's difficult for us to determine the exact size of these huge earthquakes. I mean, you probably think, there's only 10 of them here. Can't, you know, these are the 10 biggest. Can't you get them in the right order? What is going on? And so I hope that um, I'll help you to, to understand that. Okay, the tectonic environment of the Sumatra earthquake. Um, again, it's at a subduction zone. Uh, here's the epicenter here, where the Indian plate is being subducted beneath the Burma microplate. It's a small little plate. 
And um, I think that's all I want to say, actually, about that. OK, um, the rupture area, we said really great earthquakes rupture really large areas. And uh, shown on this slide is the area that slipped, the rupture area of the Sumatra earthquake uh, shown on a scale of California. And in fact, it ruptured a region the size of California. It's about 1,200 kilometers in length. Uh, just to put it in perspective, it says here that a magnitude 5 earthquake, something that maybe many of you have experienced and felt, kind of scary event, that would rupture an area the size of Central Park in New York City, okay, compared to. Uh, and the average slip that occurred over this 1,200 kilometers is close to 10 meters. And you know, it starts at the epicenter, travels at something like 8,000 kilometers per hour, okay, that slip to move up here. But in fact, detailed studies that I'm going to just tell you a little bit about indicated that the slip is in no way uniform along that whole area. And that in fact, the lower four or 500 kilometers, still a huge area, actually had most of the slip during the earthquake. So I want to tell you a little bit about how we um, can use seismic recordings of earthquakes to determine details of the slip distribution. Um, but before I do that, let me just show you some, some seismograms, some recordings of ground displacement from this earthquake. Um, and that's what you see uh, on the left. Okay. Uh, these are, this is ground displacement as a function of time. We're looking at six hours. Okay. This earthquake had the ground moving at great distances for up to six hours. Okay, that's the seismic waves that are traveling. Okay, so on this axis are the distance from the epicenter to the station recording the earthquake. And it's in degrees. So here at 20 degrees, we're talking about a station that's 2,000 kilometers away. And up here at 180 degrees, we're talking about a station that's over 18,000 kilometers away. And I think California is somewhere in here, okay, the distance about 110 to 120 degrees. And what you see here, the large amplitude arrivals are the surface waves. Okay, those are waves that actually travel along the surface of the Earth. Um, in contrast to the body waves, which are hard to see on this scale, they're the first arriving P and S waves actually dive down and travel into the interior of the Earth. But it's the surface waves that have these huge amplitude. And what you're seeing here is uh, with, with ground displacements here in California, if I can get my, okay, of you look at the scale, a centimeter. So when there, this is a, a Rayleigh wave, when the Rayleigh wave arrived here from that earthquake in California, the ground underneath us moved a centimeter. It's just amazing. And what that wave is, I have a little cartoon over here. The star is the epicenter. Here's a seismic station. Um, the the uh, R1, which is labeled R1, is a surface wave, a Rayleigh wave that travels from the earthquake source a short way around to the station. This second arrival here, labeled R2, is a wave that travels from the earthquake epicenter the long way around to the station. And then we see R3 and R4. R3 is going to start at the epicenter, go a whole 360 degrees around, and then to the station. And R4, the opposite direction, one circuit around and back to the station. So these are waves that, that you're seeing that potentially from this large earthquake could feel great distances that have gone circuits around the Earth. Really remarkable, I think. Um, okay, they're labeling R1, R2. Okay, but I want to um, concentrate a little bit on um, how we use these recordings to say something about 
how the distance that the, that the fault ruptured, how much it ruptured, the, the slip, how, how the slip varied on the rupture front. This is called source finiteness. And um, before I talk about it, I want to tell you why it's important. Why do we care how much slip occurred, where, you know, what position on the fault plane? Well, we care about it, um, so the value, what's the value of these finite source models? Um, we care about it because the regions that slipped a huge amount are going to generate the high frequency waves that are going to do the damage. So if we can know and determine the high slip regions, we can know where to expect the largest amount of damage in an earthquake. Um, as I'll show you, the details of the slip di distribution are very, very important in predicting what the tsunami waves will look like. Okay, they, tsunami waves are generated from displacing the seafloor, and the amount that it gets displaced in different regions is going to be very important in uh, generating um, and predicting the tsunamis. Okay, it's also very important to understand kind of the tectonic processes involved, and as I'll hope to go on to show you, advancing our understanding of earthquake processes. What is it about particular regions of the fault that that slip a great deal and other regions that, that don't. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, let me just briefly tell you how we use the seismic signals to say something about source finiteness. And what you see in this plot, these are also seismograms. These are P-wave seismograms for the uh, Sumatra earthquake. And now we're looking, the time scale now is, um, well, of the about, this is about 10 minutes. Okay, so we're looking at just the beginning, uh, except it's remarkable that the actual P waves go on for 10 minutes. That's how long this earthquake actually lasted. And what we're seeing, rather than recordings as a function of distance, on the y-axis is the azimuth, or the um, compass direction, that the, the station lies from the earthquake. So at zero degrees is a station due north of Sumatra, 180 is south. Back here, we're going back to the northwest. And th these are unprocessed, these are processed, basically similar. What you see is there's a variation, basically, in the duration of the, the P waves. Okay, they're shortest in direct recorded at stations to the north, and longest to the south, and come back and shorten to the north. And it's that azimuthal variation that uh, we can exploit to get, determine the rupture direction and distance. And then it's actually details. Oops, let me just go back for a second. Details, if you can see kind of outlined here, are different bursts of energy in the P waves, which are um, indicating areas on the fall plane that had larger slip. And so we can actually invert the details in their azimuthal variation for uh, a slip distribution. It's a simple um, diagram that shows um, how we use the azimuthal uh, variations in the P wave seismogram, or more commonly, we actually um, deconvolve the P wave seismograms to get moment rate as a function of time. And the idea is that if we have a rupture, let's say going, in this case, from the left to the right, that in the direction of rupture, your um, moment rate function is shortened and amplified. Okay, the area under these curves is the seismic moment. It has to be constant. But in the direction of rupture, it's shortened. In the direction opposite, it's lengthened and smaller amplitude. And perpendicular directions, it's undistorted. Okay, this is a, a Doppler effect. So from the fact that, remember, I showed you the P wave seismograms from the Sumatra earthquake, they were um, lengthened uh, in the northern azimuths. They, were, they had the um, 
shortest duration, I'm sorry, the shortest duration in the north, the longest in the south, and from that uh, it was determined that uh, it ruptured 1,200 kilometers in a northerly direction up here. The details, those different pulses of energy, are inverted for um, the slip distribution, so uh, along the fault, and um, this is a model from, from Chuck Amon, was published in Science in 2005, and what you see are contoured on the fault plane. So this is still the 1,200 kilometers of fault plane are the amount of slip that took place on that, at that position with you know, up to eight meters of slip in this kind of red color. And uh, the important observations here are that the southern section had a lot of slip, most of the slip. You can see the, the red, yellow colors down here in the southern section, and that the northern section had actually very little slip that could be determined from the seismic waves. However, there were geodetic observations, so actually observations of the ground surface deformation that require quite a bit of slip that occur up here. And um, I'm going to show you Steve Ward, who's here, um, simulation of the tsunami, which also, to match observations, required oops, slip, quite a bit of slip, uh, occurring in the north. Now, this slip is occurred too slowly to generate seismic energy. It's slow slip, but very important to include in estimating the true size of this earthquake. And this is one reason very large earthquakes are really difficult to determine their size, that seismically we can observe motions that take place over pretty short time scales. But there may be slow slip that you need other observations to include. And although we think we did this pretty, or not me, but other people have done this pretty well for this earthquake, when we compare it to the other two, number one and two on the list, the 1960 Chilean, the 1964 Alaskan earthquake, we didn't have observations of that, that there, we didn't know if there was any slow slip. Okay? We didn't have observations, uh, data to analyze that. So possibly we're underestimating their size, and maybe they are even larger than we think. Okay, um, so what um, about this earthquake? Okay, we slip, okay, what, what things that have been learned is that the slip on the plate boundary is very heterogeneous, this, even the seismic slip that happens quickly. Lots of slip in different places, and that's been observed for a lot of large earthquakes, that plate boundaries don't just uniformly move the same amount. So there's something going on in the plate interface that causes certain regions to slip large amounts, other regions to slip smaller amounts. And uh, what kind of is newer and very important observation, I want to pursue both of these as I go to the Costa Rica subduction zone, is that strain release on the plate boundary here occurred in two modes, fast that generated the seismic waves and slow slip um, that was basically aseismic. That's important in generating the tsunami and in actually producing surface uh, deformation patterns. Okay, I'm going to skip that. Um, Okay, so let me show you, let me just say, um, question. All right, well, maybe I will go back to this. Um, this, uh, this is um, a figure showing, basically, a cartoon showing different rates of slip or strain or displacement. Okay, um, and basically, I think that we have three different kinds. We have very quick seismic. Uh, what I show in this red line is what I think is kind of new for the Sumatra earthquake. It's, it's slow 
Um, it's associated with the earthquake process, so it's not occurring days or months or weeks after. It's maybe hour, an hour time uh, scale, um, but still too long to be seen with seismic surface or body waves here. We also know that faults do creep, okay, release over very long time scales, let's say, of, you know, that constantly creep. Um, you might have heard of the creeping section of the San Andreas Fault, which is some, between maybe San Juan Batista and Parkfield. Doesn't generate large earthquakes. It's kind of constantly releasing, um, having small earthquakes and, and, and moving. And I'm going to talk about um, kind of a third phenomenon, slow earthquakes, that may actually occur over um, time scales of days to weeks. But we'll get there. But for this event, we're talking about one hour time, basically, um, of, of slow slip. Okay, tsunamis are most commonly generated by these subduction zone earthquakes. Okay? And I just want to show you why and then show you a movie that, that Steve Ward made of the um, tsunami, the uh, Sumatra tsunami. Um, this is a cartoon showing um, during the period between earthquakes, right, our plates are moving, so we've got convergence, but if the the, the plate boundary, the fault, has some strength and is actually locked. Um, the downgoing plate pulls the upper plate down with it. Okay, and so that's going to be the surface deformation. There's going to be a signal between earthquakes of surface deformation. And then when the earthquake happens, this plate actually rebounds up the upper plate, displacing the seafloor and with it displacing water that, that generates a tsunami. And in subduction zones, this boundary is underwater. Okay, so you basically um, fault, and you have to displace the water above it. And here is um, the, a picture of the, the tsunami. So let me show you this movie. We're fortunate enough to have the person who generated the movie, the model, um, in the room. So um, he can answer additional questions, I hope. But um, when it stops, I'll say something about it and then show it to you again. Um, what you see here is, okay, so it's, it's a, to make this model, you have to start, I mentioned, with fault parameters. So if you can see here, the fault has been segmented, okay, and these white numbers are prescribed the amount of slip that occurred on that particular segment, slow, I'm sorry, fast slip, seismic slip, uh, with a 50-second rise time. Um, in the darker colors, I don't know if you can see here, 10, 10, 17 here, and five over here is slow slip, a time scale of um, about an hour, okay, that had to be prescribed in order to match the observation. Okay, so what you're looking at here, this is after two hours, the epicenter is over here, the fault basically ruptures for 10 minutes of fast slip and then has, what, an hour of slow slip and generates, this is, um, you're looking at, at the sea, waves, the heights in meters, so the purples here are actually troughs, right? The tsunami's got peaks and troughs. The red and yellows are the highs, so you can see values at one meter, 0.9, and that's the open ocean wave. When that comes into shallow water, it gets amplified and, and, and you get, you know, very large um, waves that are at the, um, at the shoreline. But, um, the reason that this is frozen at about two hours after the earthquake, you can see that's about the time that the tsunami reached Sri Lanka. Okay, and again, um, wave heights are shown colored here. Um, Jason, our radar satellite, went over okay, this tsunami at about two hours. And here's its track right here. So 
that's an observation. And basically, that's shown here in uh, red. This is the amplitude of the open ocean wave across this track okay, at two hours after this earthquake. And then the blue is the model, okay, this model across the same track from generating the tsunami with this uh, slip distribution. And the need for the, the slow slip, if the slow slip wasn't included, basically um, the wave height would go to zero, I think, at this point. So actually to match this trough and this peak, that slow slip in the north basically had to be added. So let me just go back and show you this movie again. So you're going to see it oops, starting from time equals zero. If you look in the, this is time after the um, initiation of the earthquake. And you're looking at the, the waves moving out. It's going to now end, I guess, at three hours. You can see where the wave fronts are and what their heights are. OK, um, so facts about this earthquake first. Um, second or third largest earthquake. I hope now you understand why we don't know if it's exactly the second or the third. It's huge. Um, what is huge? It released 4.3 times 10 to the 18 joules. Um, that's energy equivalent to about a 100 gigaton bomb or six-month uh, energy consumption of the United States. Huge, absolutely huge. The, the shift in the seafloor displaced more than 30 cubic kilometers of water. It, the rupture, the slip, um, propagated over 8,000 kilometers an hour for about 10 minutes. Um, with slips that varied between areas that slipped less than a meter to areas that slipped more than 15 meters. And the northern part of the uh, rupture area slipped an additional, actually, 10 to, I think, 15 meters over a time scale of maybe an hour. And adding those both in, the fast seismic slip and the slow slip, uh, really gives you oops, um, a moment magnitude, I think, of 9.3 is actually now the best estimate when you add in the slow and the fast slip. So was it bigger than the Alaska earthquake, which I guess has the best estimate, 9.2? Again, Alaska earthquake may very well have had a similar type of slow slip that we just could not detect at the time. OK, what I want to do uh, now is to um, turn to some of the research that, that I've been involved in, trying to understand properties of subduction zone plate boundaries that generate earthquakes, try to understand the kinds of strain or displacements fast and slow that take place. And um, what's different about the study I'm going to tell you about now from what I've said so far is all the observations that I've talked about so far have been made from, from instruments that were far from the earthquake. And um, I was involved in ex an experiment where we put instrumentation, geodetic and seismic instruments, right on top of the plate boundary. And so I want to hopefully show you kinds of things that we can um, determine from having instrumentation sitting right on top of the plate boundary. Um, I just want to acknowledge that this was, has been a collaborative, and it's an ongoing collaborative effort. And here are names of many of, of uh, I guess, almost all of my, my collaborators on, in this. What you see here is a map of Costa Rica with um, black dots showing where, or I guess, black triangles showing seismic instruments that we deployed on land and actually offshore. Um, this deployment was only for 18 months. And then the triangles uh, are geodetic monuments that we emplaced and then observed positions kind of on a yearly basis. And I'll be talking about um, 
at those results. But first, let me just try to address a little bit what is it that we can tell about this subduction plate boundary um, from placing instruments right above it, okay, like this. And I've already mentioned that um, earthquakes don't occur to great depths into the Earth. And although they occur, plate boundary events tend to occur, um, well, oops, sorry. Okay, they don't occur to great depths. That there's, there's a, a transition in the deformation from kind of a brittle where you can have earthquakes to a more ductile flow that is temperature dependent. And people have um, pointed to temperatures of 350 to 450 degrees as kind of the temperature to initiate that type of transition. And so we have a down dip limit to where you have earthquake, um, earthquakes occurring or earthquake rupture okay, during a, a large earthquake. Um, we also notice that in subduction zones, earthquakes don't occur all the way up to the sea, sea floor, um, that they st start somewhere at some, some depth. And um, people think that this also may be a temperature limit, that we have a lot of sediments that are hydrated or being subducted into the system, and that um, you, they're very weak, and that you need to uh, have reach certain pressures and temperatures, maybe temperatures of 100 to 150 degrees, to completely dewater the sediments, to have mineral transformations that actually strengthen the fault, enough to have frictional uh, stick-slip earthquake behavior. And so it appears that there's also an up-dip limit. Rebecca? Um, I'd say roughly this, no, we're, t we're talking maybe a, uh, a few kilometers, three, two. And this is true of continental regions, too, even along the San Andreas Fault. We don't get earthquakes generally up to the surface. They tend to start in continental environments, maybe up to three kilometers here, maybe 10 kilometers. But we don't know. That's what we'd like. I mean, thing is that it's very, very difficult to determine that. And one of the advantages of having instruments right over is that you can more precisely define. And so that's exactly one of the goals is to define where earthquakes or where locking, where you can actually, even if an earthquake hasn't occurred, where is there strain accumulating and you can break and have a big earthquake. So where is the up-dip limit? Where is the down-dip limit? And what are, the, what are the factors? Can we correlate it with other observations to try to understand what is? Is it simply temperature-dependent or temperature and pressure-dependent? Or are there more complications? Okay, other questions we can address are, what about the strength of plate coupling? Are there regions that are strong that are going to slip larger amounts during an earthquake than other regions? Are there areas that seem to slip aseismically without earthquakes that are either continuously creeping or have slow slip? So these are all questions that um, I think are easier and that I've tried to address with uh, putting instruments above the, the plate boundary. So let me just quick give you a little tectonic um, overview of Costa Rica. Um, here is Costa Rica, Nicaragua to the north, Panama to the south. Again, it's at the Middle America Trench, or subduction zone, where the Cocos Plate here is subducting beneath the Panama, uh, sorry, beneath the Caribbean Plate at very fast rates. Okay, this is 9 to 10 centimeters a year. That's about as fast as, as uh, plate convergence gets. Um, the earthquake history here, the, the black dots are earthquakes that are larger than 7. The triangles here are the active uh, volcanic chain. Again, we can talk later why. Volcanoes are always associated with subduction zones, but it's not important for what I want to say today.
But um, the largest of these earthquakes um, is this 1950 um, event. And um, it was about a magnitude 7.7 on the plate interface. The largest earthquake prior to that occurred in 1900, suggesting maybe a 50-year or so recurrence interval. Um, it's basically in the interseismic cycle. We're expecting another large earthquake sometime. And um, so question to ask is, you're in the interseismic cycle. Your plates are converging. If your plate's locked, you're going to expect a certain pattern of deformation. So what is the pattern of strain accumulation um, that we can detect from surface deformation? So what we want to use here are observations um, from GPS receivers that are, in this case now, the sites are shown as the blue triangles. Okay, they, they have to, right now, all be on land, constrained to be on land. And um, we put in monuments and gone back and had three days or so of observations about every year um, from somewhere between 1994 and 2004. And by making observations, what you're getting a very, very precise position, okay, positions that are accurate to less than a centimeter. And then by comparing positions from year to year, we actually can get um, velocities. And so. Um, let me just show you what kind of patterns we're going to be looking for. As I mentioned, we're now in the inner seismic stage between great earthquakes. The plates are converging. So as in this cartoon, you've got you know, the downgoing plate um, is converging with respect to the upper plate. If the plate boundary zone, right, it has some finite strength, is locked, as that plate moves down, it's going to deform the upper plate. And over the locked boundary, what it's going to do is it's going to cause um, the upper plate to, up, to be uplifted and to move in the direction of plate convergence. Okay, and that's just the opposite pattern as you get right after an earthquake. Okay, the motions after an earthquake are right when the earthquake breaks, the upper plate moves opposite to plate convergence. And in fact, um, the region subsides right over the, um, the locked fault. So <clears throat> actually, I'm not going to go over. Um, how we can get very precise position estimates. But using a constellation of about 24 satellites that basically triangulate, you make corrections for propagation and the various other orbits, get very precise orbits, um, you can determine your position to sub-centimeter. Okay? You compare it year to year, and you get uh, vectors that are showing um, velocity. And that's what's plotted here at the different GPS sites, blue um, vectors are plate velocity. Okay, here's the scale. So they range from, I don't know, 20 millimeters a year to about 70 millimeters a year. Here's the direction of convergence. We can see oh, these are horizontal. Um, I'm not going to show you any vertical velocities because um, in the tropics, uh, the troposphere is very wet. It makes um, propagation corrections fairly difficult. The data is a little bit noisy, and I'll tell you later what we're doing to try to correct that. But in general, we do um, see an, an uplift, which is expected for a strain accumulation signal. So the the oops, the um, the horizontal motion is in subparallel to the to the plate um, convergence direction and moving up. So what we can do is we can actually invert these. Um, velocities for the pattern, for what on the plate boundary, which patches are completely locked, 
okay, and accumulating strain and which ones are slipping. And um, we did that, and that uh, solution is shown here where we're, it's a map view, but we're contouring the dipping plate interface, and what's being contoured is the percent of the plate convergence of nine centimeters a year that is actually locked, not moving, okay, it's basically it's pulling the upper plate down with it. It's not slipping. There's no slip if we have the colors that are basically in the green to reds and um, more freely slipping, basically not locked at all in the blues and purples. And what we see is um, basically a, a locked patch just offshore that grades into an area that's slipping pretty close to the plate rate and then possibly another locked patch. Um, Again, these are the, the observations are in blue, and the match to this model are the white vectors. So what does this mean? Well, first thing is now we can actually see kind of the most, uh, or define the kind of updip extent of where we're accumulating strain. That's where the plate is locked. Okay. And so this, we think, is the kind of shallow extension of the seismogenic zone, the region that potentially can break in a large earthquake. What we'd like to do, we had seismometers and we recorded a lot of earthquakes, is to compare this pattern of locked, right now, um, locked regions on the plate interface and moving regions with the earthquakes. Where are the plate boundary earthquakes occurring? And uh, here's, again, the map view. All the red dots here show all of the earthquakes that we were able to locate with our network. And they don't just occur on the plate boundary. A lot of these earthquakes are occurring in the downgoing plate, in the upper plate. And so to identify those that are occurring on the plate boundary, we have to <clears throat> do either determine their actual faulting geometry to see if they're consistent with the plate boundary, and um, determine details of the velocity structure, which we can actually then define the plate boundary. And for now, you're going to have to kind of take my word for it that we're able to do that, and um, that the seismicity in the region is shown here in map view in black, where the colored um, circles are those events that are occurring on the plate boundary. And they're shown in a northern and a southern cross-section over here. And so we can see from these plate boundary events that they also start at some depth below uh, the seafloor and end at, at some depth. And then we'd like to compare them to where are they occurring on the plate boundary relative to our geodetic locking. And so that's all. Uh, put on this slide um, also with a thermal model, temperatures at the plate boundary that were determined by Spinelli and, and Safer. And so what, what do we see from this? Well, observations that this, what we believe to be the updip limit of the seismogenic zone that we can see as the shallowest region where the plate is actually locked, seems to correlate with at least models of temperatures for this area that are between 100 and 150 degrees C. So it seems like hypotheses that um, you need to attain certain temperatures to have mineral transformations, dewater uh, the sediments to get some finite strength and to allow frictional uh, earthquake behavior may be operating in this region. Okay, the other thing we notice is that the locked region, the geodetically locked patch, has no small earthquakes. Doesn't seem to be slipping at all. And that the earthquakes start just down dip of that patch where geodetically the area seems to be, there seems to be slip between the, uh, the plates. 
And um, we can also see, look at where these earthquakes seem to terminate. And um, in fact, they seem to end. The down dip, their down dip extent seems to be shallower than where the plate temperatures are 300 degrees. So it seems like they're ending before you would move into a kind of a brittle to ductile uh, transition. Um, they seem to correlate better with the boundary of the continental moho or the change from um, continental material to mantle material. I, I don't want to talk about that right now. Um, so what are the implications? Well, first off, this locked patch is very likely the region in the next large earthquake that can happen today or, I don't know, 50 years or 100 years. We don't know the expectations. It's going to be sooner than later. But when that earthquake happens, most of the slip will probably occur in this patch that is locked and not slipping. So it will have larger amounts. It will be, for the Sumatra earthquake, it'll be the southern portion, the portion that actually generates a lot of seismic energy. And that the, the deeper portions of the plate boundary probably won't have as much slip. Another implication is that something, we've got the fault locked, very strongly locked, not moving to some depth at about 20 kilometers, it starts to move in small earthquakes and that we can um, geodetically observe. What might be happening? At that pressure and temperature, models of the, the model temperature, sorry, model temperatures there are about um, 250 degrees. Um, it's possible that th those, uh, that's a pressure and temperature where the oceanic crust that's being subducted, some of the minerals in the oceanic crust are transforming and releasing water, that that water is actually increasing pore pressure on the fault and actually unclamping it, allowing it to move. Okay, um, so that, those are some of the observations and conclusions that we were able to draw from the temporary deployment of instruments. Since uh, we removed them in 2001, we put in and begin to put in continuous GPS stations. So continuous means rather than having to bring your receiver and observe at your monument for a few days every year, we have um, a receiver there permanently that is recording ground uh, position you know, once every 30 seconds. A lot of averaging, and you can see not only um, linear velocities, but other motions. And uh, this slide shows the location of these three stations, one, two, and three. And I want to show you a very interesting signal that we recorded in uh, September of 2003. So what you're seeing here is the latitudinal variation um, change displacement as a function of time. Okay, these are days in 2003 for the three stations. What we're seeing is there's this linear trend here. They're all basically moving north, and the eastern component is to the east. That's the strain accumulation signal, the, the motion in the direction of plate convergence due to the locked uh, patch underneath uh, these stations. But then in September of 2003, there's a reversal of this motion, a reversal that lasts about 35 days or so. Okay, and then it returns back to the strain accumulation signal. And that 35-day signal is what I'm terming slow earthquake. Okay. The, the vector, the motion, so here now we can see what the vectors look like. You've already seen these black vectors are very similar to what we were modeling with our monuments, with our temporary yearly GPS observations. It's the observation of strain accumulating on a locked interface 
you're getting motions, horizontal motions, parallel to the plate convergence. That's this black vectors. But that reversal for 35 days or so is in the opposite direction. That's this red, um, these red vectors, which are consistent with earthquake, the co-seismic displacement. But it's not an earthquake that lasts seconds. It lasted 35 days. It did not generate seismic signals. Probably with three stations recording it, it's very hard to determine the size. Our best model estimate is uh, be about equivalent to a magnitude 6 earthquake, but six, magnitude 6 earthquake that took 35 days to occur. These slow earthquakes have been observed in the Cascadia subduction zone off of Washington and Oregon, and actually with a regular interval of about every 13 months. So they're a phenomena that certainly has been observed before. We know very little bit, very little about, okay? fairly new, very poorly understood. And other than understanding what is it about the material properties in the plate interface that allow this type of motion to occur, they're very important because they can, will, in fact, change the stress regime of the locked patch. Okay, so the, in the Costa Rica, they're occurring just down dip of that locked patch that's kind of we're waiting for it to break in a large earthquake. Then you have slow slip um, down dip of it that will certainly transfer stress and potentially will bring that locked patch closer to failure and shorten the time until uh, the next earthquake. So they certainly have an earthquake hazard component. So future work that I'm uh, involved in is expanding the permanent GPS network. We now have five um, permanent GPS sites installed in Costa Rica, and in the next few months, we'll be expanding that to 10 to 15. We'll be putting in about 10 seismic stations. This is kind of a, I guess, our ideal configuration. And what we want to do is to study these various modes of strain release. Fast seismic release, we know as earthquakes, slow aseismic earthquakes, and also, potentially, are there regions that are even continuously slipping? That, you know, there, we think there's potentially that the plate boundary has three different modes of strain release and trying to understand um, what actually is controlling the different, different modes. So let me just close by coming back to why you should care about earthquake research or think it's important. And I just want to remind you, civilization exists by geologic consent. And if we look at a list of the top 14 natural disasters that occurred in this century, and this figure was made to indicate, you know, doesn't include Sumatra earthquake, so obviously that one goes on the list. Um, most of them are, in fact, earthquakes. And so if we can understand earthquake processes, then hopefully we can help to mitigate uh, their hazard. Thank you. Not release of high temperatures. Um, I said that you you make transition from frictional stick slip to stable sliding, at, or you know, as temperature increases. So you actually 
Um, oh, at the, I'm sorry, at the shallow end, right? At the shallow end, you may have a temperature limit. You may have to reach a certain temperature before you start to get earthquakes in this environment. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that is uh, certainly not accepted by everyone. Um, the data that I've collected in Costa Rica seems to support other observations that you don't get either earthquakes themselves or um, locking on the fault, which will break in an earthquake until that plate boundary reaches um, temperatures of about 120, 150 degrees. So um, the idea is that, right, you have to increase pressure and temperature, undergo um, dehydration, well, dewater the, the sediments, undergo some mineral transformations that actually strengthen. It's not that well known. Um, there's been some experimental work on some of the materials and sediments, and in fact, um, it hasn't quite, as you increase temperature, the transformations they undergo haven't necessarily taken them from kind of the stable sliding to stick slip. So it, at this point, it's a hypothesis. The op, some of the observations, I'd say most of them, seem to give it validity, but it's yet to be, I think, really experimentally validated. So it's still certainly at the hypothesis. Christine? Um, I probably would. I mean, you're saying in the same material as opposed to, you know, where we observe this slow slip event is where there's a lot of small earthquakes, but appears from the uh, geodetic, from the surface deformation, appears to be kind of slipping. Whether it's slipping continuously or maybe slipping only in these slow earthquakes, we don't know. But, um, and whether it can, you know, whether there may actually be large seismic events possible in that region we don't know either. It, it, I would, it appears probably not, at least not in the immediate future. And that's part of, you know, do, if you can define the kind of properties of the plate boundary, this area is locked and strong and probably will have a lot of slip in a big earthquake. This region seems to be slipping kind of continuously, so won't accumulate a lot of strain to release in a big earthquake. Whether that is just there for one earthquake cycle or 15, I don't think we have any idea. Stanley. When you were talking about the slow earthquakes and that you see about six. six. What's the significance of that designation when it's dissipated over such a period of time? And reacting magnitude is somewhat arbitrary, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, you know, we model it just like we model earthquake. It, it has a fault area. You know, and it has an amount of slip. So the time, it's not, jet, it's not slipping slow enough, I mean, fast enough to generate seismic waves, but still, the slip that occurs over the... I thought Right, no one felt it, but the moment, we, you know, we measure the, the moment is the important parameter in earthquakes, and basically, if you have a fault area, you have a slip, and you have material properties, those are the parameters that go into estimating a moment. And so, um, it's still, it has a moment that, you know, it, you're right, but it's not going to be do any damage. And from a hazard point, I mean, from a scientific point of view, to me, it's fascinating to try to understand why they're occurring, what, what material properties are required. You know, it's not stick slip and it's not stable sliding, is it? But also, from a hazard point of view, it's still slip that's loading boundaries and boundaries that might be locked and triggering or certainly um, uh, decreasing, potentially decreasing the time 
to have a large earthquake. It may also increase the time. Depending on exactly what the slip looked like, it'll have various effects on the stress you know, in a locked patch. But it may well be Well, the slip is down you know, at 15. Ex yeah. The faults I'm talking about are down 15. You know, the, these regions are 15 or 20 kilometers below the surface. But you're right. Uh, this, the, the, actually, there have been slow slip events recorded in a port, port, part of the San Andreas Fault. And so you're right. There, you know, um, it's comparable to slip. You know, we, you're still displacing. And you're right. You don't want to have it's still going to um, stress foundations and, and structures. In the back. Well, I mean, right, I mean, above Co where the Cocos plates moving, um, where we've made recordings in Costa Rica. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Geodetically, you know, we're looking at a, sur a signal of surface deformation, and um, so. When, I, when we looked at the, we modeled our velocities that were obtained by determining a position every year and getting a velocity. Um, when we inverted for that and said these regions are, are slipping at the plate rate, we don't know from those observations whether maybe they're, they're locked and then slipping in slow earthquakes. So having the continuous network will be able to address that. Right now, I don't know if there is continuous creep or if it's locked, and then having slow earthquakes. I can't answer that yet. But by putting, but having continuous observations, we'll see if we, you know, if we just have, you know, if we'll, we'll be able to answer that question. Well, there are still cookies, I think, back there. So um, I'll, I'm certainly willing to hang around if anyone wants to um, come up and talk to me personally. <laughs>